he's not wrestling with the Lord. The Lord is wrestling out of him, the self-sufficiency, the pride, the scheming, and yes, even the running. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. This morning, let's open our Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 32. We're picking back up in our study of the book of Genesis, and um, I don't do this often, but I am not going to preach the same sermon that we had in first service. I'm going to switch up some things for our time today. First service, we had a technical issue, and it didn't get live streamed, so now we are live streaming this. And uh, we're just going to trust that the Lord has a different message than was originally prepared. And uh, I'm always scared of that and excited for that. So um, let's uh, do this. Let's, we're going to read through Genesis 32 together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive into it. Genesis 32, reading from the English Standard Version, says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Yahweh who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, 
They belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the living God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Savior, we come before you this morning in great need. For as the disciples said to Jesus, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, I come to you personally in complete reliance upon your word to be sufficient for our growth and our good this morning. We thank you that you've promised and declared that it is so, that the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides the thoughts and the intent of the heart and is useful for teaching us, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be complete, lacking no thing, but equipped in every good work. Lord, we ask that you would equip us now by the Spirit that you would teach us and be our great comforter. Lord, we pray that you'd make much of Jesus, our Savior, as we open up this text. We see Jacob and his despair. Lord, may we in our hearts this morning look upon Christ alone. We ask that, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's walking in times of distress, that this sermon, this text would be a balm that brings a soothing relief and a reminder that you are with us. Lord, we thank you for this time. We ask that you'd be glorified through your word in Christ's name. Amen. E.M. E. Bounds famously said, what the church needs today is not more machinery, not better machinery, not new organizations, not new novel methods, 
but men whom the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The reality is, though, this morning, when you and I consider our own prayer lives, very few of us would say, I am a mighty man of prayer. I'm a woman who prevails in prayer. They did a survey a few years ago of pastors, and they said, how many hours a day do you pray? And they found that the average pastor prays about three minutes a day. They surveyed kids at a Christian school, and they found that they prayed three times a day. They thought, that's interesting. Why three times a day? Well, they found out that they prayed for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner, and that was about it. Many of us this morning would be very shy to raise our hand. I don't think any of us would raise our hand and say, actually, my prayer life is exactly what it should be. I'm a mighty man or woman of prayer. And yet, as we come to this text in Genesis chapter 32 and next week in chapter 33, we find that Jacob is now going to meet with Esau. He's going to meet with the person that for the last 20 plus years, he has in some ways been thankful not to be near. He's been away. And just by way of reminder, a little bit of a summary of where we've been. If you've not been with us, we teach verse by verse through the scripture. And we, in the study of Jacob's life in Genesis, began with Jacob, whose name means heel catcher. His name means deceiver, supplanter. He was born that way, came out of his mother's womb, holding on to the heel of his brother, wanting to be the firstborn. We saw how he grew up and in many ways reserved or stole the birthright that belonged to his brother Esau. He, with deception and his mother's help, was able to fool his father Isaac into believing that he was Esau through not only some convincing food, but also through uh, a bit of a ruse with his clothing and putting on some animal skins. And his father torn because he hears the voice of Jacob, but uh, he smells and, and feels what seems to be the body and the personage of Esau. He was able to deceive his father and secure that blessing. Esau coming in right afterwards and finding that his brother had stolen what he felt was rightfully his. We saw that Rebekah then sends her son to her brother Laban, hundreds of miles to the north. We learned how uh, Jacob immediately at the well falls in love, if you would, at first sight with Rachel, and he desires to uh, have her hand in marriage, and yet her father says, you can have her hand in marriage for seven years of farming and herding. And Jacob was willing to do that. It seemed like only a few minutes. And yet on his wedding night, the deceitful Laban snuck Leah, the older sister, to Rachel into the wedding tent. And of course, Jacob wakes up the next morning, realizes he's not been joined with Rachel, his love, but with her sister Leah. And enraged, he goes to Laban and Laban says, all right, listen, it's not our, it's not our custom to let you marry uh, the second born. And so would you work another seven years? For Rachel's hand. And of course, he's joined with Rachel immediately, works those seven years. Those did not seem like a day, much longer period of time. And then at the end of that time, Jacob realizes I have nothing to show for these years of work. I'm basically uh, someone with, with no resources. And now I have not only two wives, but as we saw in a previous chapter, these two wives had begun to compete with each other in childbearing. Leah had multiple children, and then Rachel was unable to conceive, she gives Jacob her maidservant, and then Leah does the same, and they end up with 11 children, 11 sons and a daughter, and uh, 
lots of hungry mouths to feed. And so uh, Jacob speaks to Laban and says, all right, here's what I'm willing to do. I'm, I'm willing to take the spotted from your flock, a small minority of your flock, and uh, you can just send me with those. Laban agrees, but then as we learn, he quarantined the spotted speckled animals. And by God's providence in a dream, Jacob is communicated how to selective breed. We saw there that he was able to build a strong and large flock, and he was, because of that, able to add servants and camels to his portfolio, making him a much more wealthy man. Well, we saw in our last study of Genesis in chapter 30, 31, that God had communicated to Jacob, it's time to leave. It's time to return home to Canaan. Laban no longer is looking at you with favor. And God had promised, I'm going to be with you just like I've been with you from the very beginning at Bethel. And so Jacob, we saw, he waited for a moment to, to get away when Laban was gone and he flees with his family, with all that he has. But we learned that Rachel secretly stole her father's God. So Laban comes home, he realizes Jacob and my gods are missing. He pursues to do him harm. And we saw in chapter 31 how even then God was with Jacob. God had told in a dream, Laban, do not say anything good or bad to Jacob. You're to, you're to stay away from him, essentially. And Jacob takes the opportunity. There's no missing or there's no found idols. He takes that opportunity to communicate his frustration and his innocence before Laban. And in the end, what they do is they cut a covenant between the two of them. They build a pile of rocks and essence saying, this is a dividing line. Laban, do not cross this line. And I, Jacob, I will not cross this line either. But we're going to agree to depart from one another and not hold any harm against each other. And so that's where we left off in the story. And this morning, as we come to chapter 32, we come to a text that in many ways reveals the heart of Jacob, but in other ways, it shows us a very interesting um, scenario that the latter half of the chapter, starting in uh, around verse 22, where it pictures what is described as a man wrestling with Jacob and then touching his hip, putting it out of joint, and leaving Jacob clinging to him uh, to bless him. And so as we begin this chapter, what we begin with is a place in Jacob's life where he is above every other moments in his life. He is at the greatest moment of distress and despair. In fact, the anguish that Jacob is facing in this chapter may be so far beyond the pale that only a handful of us in this room this morning have ever experienced. What we're looking at here at the beginning is the threat of imminent death. And there's only a few of us here who can relate to the crippling torment of not knowing whether the next few hours of our life hold within their grasp death or our good. There's only a few of us that can say, at least at this stage in our life, we know what it's like when life and with, when death hang in the balance. Now that may come to your life at some point, most likely at the graveside or at the bedside of someone that you love, who you cherish, and you realize this could be at their bedside the last few moments, at their graveside saying, Lord, I don't know if I can continue on, if I can find hope. But in this chapter, we're going to see Jacob in some ways wrestling and other ways prevailing. And so if you're taking note, we're going to look at four ideas and um, draw these four ideas from the text. First, we're going to see Jacob panics in verses 1 through 8. 
We're going to see Jacob pray in verses 9 through 12. We're going to see in verses 13 through 21 that Jacob prepares. And this could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on our perspective. But we'll also see Jacob prevails in verses 22 through 32. And now, even though we can't all relate to the same extent of the distress that Jacob is facing in this chapter, the truth is all of us here this morning, at some level, are facing some level of concern or some trial, or we've all experienced a moment of anxiety, a flash of fear, and these things have come into our lives for a variety of reasons. And this morning, it's my prayer that as we look at Jacob's life, and particularly the fact that he wrestled with God, the fact that he prevails in prayer, it's my prayer that we understand what it's like for us to trust God, to prevail in prayer, and like Jacob, to have our entire identity transformed because we met with God. The great preacher affectionately known as the doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Someone once asked him, what does it look like if a person has truly met God? What does that person look like? And Lloyd-Jones, alluding to chapter 32, he said, someone who's truly met with God walks with a limp. And I like that. You see, it's my prayer this morning that we understand that God proves faithful even in times of trouble. That we can rest in him even when, especially when, there's tension in our lives when our hearts are tremendously overwhelmed and that we would learn how to be people who are not filled with our own self-sufficiency, with our own self-reliance. Could it be said of us this morning that the believers at King's Cross Church have no need of God because all of the resources that they need are at their own disposal? Or could it be said of us this morning those people so trust in God that even when their life seems to be limping along, they've prevailed in prayer. They trust in the God who's faithful. So that's my prayer. Even if certain death awaits us, that we can say like Jacob, hey, this place that I'm dwelling in, it's desolate, it's desperate, but this is God's camp. This is where God is. Amen? So let's look at this first section, Jacob panics, verses 1 through 8. Notice it says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. So please circle that, uh, that phrase, angels of God. Uh, we'll come back to that in a minute. It says in verse 2, when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place two camps, or Mehanim. It means two camps. So Jacob, he says in verse 1, going on his way, he's leaving Mizpah. He is moving away from the pile of stones that he and Laban had set up as the witness between the two of them. So just think about the situation where Jacob is right now. Laban is behind him. Esau is ahead of him. Where does he turn to now? Who meets him in this place of need? What is his response? Well, thankfully, as he goes on his way, God intervenes. The angels of God met him. Now, I told you to circle that phrase, the angels of God. This expression in this exact way is only used one other place in the entire Old Testament, and that is also in Jacob's life back in Genesis 28, 12. And that's where Jacob dreamed of the angels of God at Bethel. Remember, they were ascending and descending upon the ladder or the ziggurat. So he names this place as he sees the angels here, 
meeting with him. He names this place Mahanaim, and it means two camps, and it should be obvious. He's not referring to his own two camps. He's referring to man's camp, the place where his family is temporarily dwelling as he's about to meet Esau face-to-face, but he's also referencing God's camp, the fact that this is a place where the angels of God are coming to minister to him. And so I would argue that the angels provide two things for Jacob. They provide, first of all, comfort, but second of all, wisdom. So comfort. Coming to this place and realizing as he's about to face the unknown, the angels meet with him, and this is a reminder of when they had met him at Bethel. 20 years earlier, Genesis 28, 15 says that God had assured Jacob, behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I'll bring you back into this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. God was faithful to keep his promise. So really, Bethel and this moment at Mehanim are the bookends of Jacob's really difficult uh, trial under the deceptive and strong arm of Laban. And so as he's about to go back into Canaan, he can reflect back and say, God has been faithful to keep his promises. And he's reminded that the battles that we fight are not flesh and blood. The battles that we fight are spiritual. And I have a sufficient God who is alongside me. And this sufficient God has commissioned angels as his messenger servants. These angels are there to bring encouragement. And so Jacob may be alone here with just his family, but now he sees the host of heaven is there with him. And even if you can't observe the host of heaven with physical eyes, it's a reminder you're not alone. In fact, the New Testament speaks of angels. Hebrews 1.14, the writer of Hebrews asks, are they angels? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels in scripture are often sent to be with God's people before, during, and after a time of difficulty. For example, Jesus, after being tempted in the wilderness. It says that Satan leaves him until an opportune time. And right there in Matthew 4.11, after Satan leaves, it says, and angels came and attended to him. Angels came to minister to our Lord right after that time of trial. In fact, in the midst of trial, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was in agony as he considered the weight of the cup of God's wrath that he was about to consume on the cross. Luke 22.43 says, in that agony, there appeared to him an angel from heaven and and the angel strengthened him. You see, knowing that these angels are present with Jacob here, this would have provided a good ballast of comfort for him. But they also would probably provide him wisdom. So the angels meet Jacob, and remember, the basic definition or description of an angel is that they're simply messengers. And so I believe as he sees these messengers from God coming to meet with him, The idea, like a light bulb, goes off in Jacob's mind. That's what I should do with Esau. In fact, in verse 3, you could argue that the Hebrew reads this way, and Jacob sent angels before him, or messengers before him, to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And so he sends his servants to communicate with Esau. And notice that these servants come with a few things. First, they come with humility. They refer to him as your servant, and they refer to Esau as the Lord. 
Uh, they also come with information. So Jacob has been with Laban this entire time. They come with gifts. So they're to bring all of these oxen, donkey, flocks, and servants. And they also come with a re request. The request is for favor. We're coming, bringing these gifts, informing you of what Jacob is up to. He's your servant, by the way. Write that down, Esau. And we're coming to seek favor from you. Now, even with all of that preparation, notice the ominous news they come back with. Verse 6. The messengers returned to Jacob, and they said, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Uh-oh. That's about as bad news. That's the worst news that you could possibly have. Not only is Esau coming. Oh, he's coming. But he's coming with 400 men. This sounds like an army ready to besiege Jacob and to attack his exposed family. So verse 7 should be obvious. It says, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. The word for distressed here in the Hebrew means to be tied up, cramped, wrapped up, or bound. It's the exact same word used in Genesis 3 when Adam knew that the presence of the Lord was there and he was naked and he was afraid and he hid. That's the same idea. Knowing what certain death awaited him. Okay, this is, this is not just a little flash of anxiety. I know I talked to some, some believers and they're like, oh, I just was really anxious this week. I'm like, why? And they're like, because there was traffic. I was like, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, we all face traffic. Um, but I wouldn't call traffic like, like trials of many kinds that the scripture talks. I don't know if that's like, it's definitely not persecution, right? It's not suffering for Jesus if you wait in a little bit of traffic. But it can be annoying, uh, you know. But to say like, oh, I was just, yeah, I couldn't get out of bed this morning. I thought about traffic. You know, I'm just, I'm just bound up with anxiety. That's, that's not the idea uh, that we look at here. The idea here is we could even call this an acute panic attack. He is absolutely distressed. He is greatly afraid. He is overwhelmed to the point that he has nowhere else to go. And so God's camp here at Mahanaim was meant to produce comfort and wisdom. It was a reminder to Jacob, listen, I am with you. I am going to be faithful to keep my promises that I've been faithful these last 20 years to keep. Don't be anxious. Don't be greatly distressed. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Rise up, Jacob. Meet your brother with boldness. With humility, yes, but with boldness and love. You see, you and I need to be reminded in times of turmoil, this is still God's camp. Does that make sense? In whatever trial that we're dealing with, we realize that Christ has promised to be with us until the end of the age. And if that wasn't enough, that Christ is present with us, that his spirit is within all believers, we also have the assistance of messenger servants known as angels. Psalm 34.7, you don't seem convinced by that, but Psalm 34.7 tells us this. David said this, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Do you know when David wrote that? He didn't write Psalm 34 in the sound studio with all of the harps and lyres tuned correctly and everything mic'd up. No, he wrote that in a place of real despair, not theoretical despair. The Psalms are not written in theory. They're written with the blood, sweat, and tears of real life. And so notice the heading on the screen of Psalm 34. This psalm was written, it says, a psalm of David, when? When he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. 
This was a moment of real life and death for David. He finds himself driven into the camp of the enemy. And the enemy's going to kill him. And so remember, he started acting as if he's insane so that his life was spared. You see, God's promise to protect his people is not something we leave in the classroom and theorize and speculate and debate on Facebook. No, this is something that each one of us can lean on in times of great worry. Psalm 91.11, you know the psalm of comfort, Psalm 91. This verse was actually taken out of context, quoted by the devil at Jesus' temptation, but Psalm 91.11 says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Do you trust that? Do you rest in that, that we are not alone, that God will guard his people and even with the assistance of angels? There's a story of John Payton, a missionary to the South Pacific Islands of Vanuatu, and he tells the story in his biography uh, about some hostile natives that were um, surrounding his mission headquarters um, early on in their ministry. And these natives surrounded them with the intent to, to flush them out of the house and then to kill them. And so they secured the house as good as they could and then they, they huddled he and his wife in the middle of the home and they prayed all night long. And when they, uh, basically when daylight came, they looked outside, the attackers had left. Now about a year later, the the chief of the tribe had come to Christ and Peyton asked the man, remember that night the whole tribe was surrounding us and wanted to kill us? And the chief replied, yes, I do remember that night. And my question is, who were all those men that were with you? And the missionary explained, it was just my wife and I. And the chief insisted, no, I saw hundreds of big men with shiny garments and swords circling the home all night long. And so the natives were afraid to attack. Now, we don't need to look at anecdotal evidence of this. We can look to the scripture that God promises to guard his people. We can rest in that truth. Now, speaking of prayer, this situation drives Jacob to pray. And I want us to spend some time on the second idea. Jacob prays. And Jacob's prayer here provides us a great template when we consider our own prayer lives. And I just want to, for a few minutes, um, spend some time unpacking this. So if you want to jot these down, there's really five things that we learn from Jacob's prayer. And I think it's important that we, if we want to be people uh, that are mighty in prayer, that's not going to happen by default. It's not going to happen accidentally. It certainly won't happen haphazardly. It happens by us being intentional, by learning how to pray. Remember the disciples said to Jesus, teach us how to pray. We need to be taught this. Would you model this for us? Like, Take the time to instruct us so we know what we're doing. And so I don't know if you've ever been intimidated in prayer, not sure what do I even say, how do I do this? I think this template is helpful for us. So if you're taking note, first of all, uh, first thing in prayer is to address God rightly. Notice that Jacob, verse 9, says, Oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. And then he refers to him as Yahweh, Oh Lord. You see, he's calling upon a God who's been proven faithful. You are faithful to Abraham. You are faithful to Isaac. You are Yahweh. You're the covenant-keeping God. You're the God who said to me, return to your country and your kindred. You, you're a personal God. You, you are transcendent, but yet you're imminent. You're here with me. You've spoken clearly to me. That's who you are. 
So I love that he first addresses God rightly. And in our prayer, it's important for us to think about who we are addressing, that we come before the Lord and and some of us use repetitive language. We, we just say, Lord God, whenever we approach the Lord. But I would really encourage you to think through how you address the Lord. Remember, Jesus said, and this is how we pray, our Father. So, so we, there's different titles we can use to address the Lord in prayer. But secondly, we learn from Jacob's prayer to admit your weakness. Admit your weakness. In our prayer life, as we come before this mighty, holy, just God, just like we do in our Sunday gatherings. We spend that first song or two and that call to worship just reflecting on an attribute of the greatness of God. And then what do we immediately do? Like Isaiah, we immediately say, uh-oh, woe is me. I'm a sinner in the presence of a holy God, so I need to confess my sin. And so in our prayer, it's important that we admit our weakness. Notice what verse 10, Jacob confesses. He says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. Then he admits who he was when he crossed the Jordan. He says, I only crossed the Jordan with this piece of wood. I had a staff with me, but now I have become two camps. Lord, you've been so faithful. Look at all that you've done. And so he's admitting his weakness and that this was not due to him, but to God. God was faithful all along to provide for him, to protect him. But that leads us to the third idea, which is thirdly to acknowledge his work. You admit your weaknesses, but you also acknowledge his work. And Jacob goes here to recall the deeds of God's hesed, his, his faithful love. Lord, I'm not worthy of all the deeds of steadfast love that you and faithfulness that you have shown to me. God had been with him while he was under Laban's authority and he had come to his aid even when Laban chased after him. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, quote, while Jacob thus pleads his own unworthiness, he is not slow to plead God's goodness, end quote. So prayer is not just groveling before the Lord. It is confessing our sin, admitting our weakness, but also rooting our hope and our encouragement in his work and his person. Well, then we come to what we usually think of with prayer, which is number four, ask specific requests. In verse 11, Jacob asks specifically, God, deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. Jacob is confessing here, with man, this is impossible. I'm about to face certain death. I'm going to split into two camps because one of us has to make it. And I hope that I'm spared mercy. So God, would you intervene? Would you deliver me? Would you save me? He asked specific requests. Now, I believe it's immature if we reduce prayer simply to petitioning. Does that make sense? Where we just pray asking things from God. So the man or woman of God who's desiring to grow in prayer, to mature in prayer, they understand that our, relation, our relationships one to another is way deeper than just asking for things to be done by each other. Like, can you imagine if our marriages looked like our prayer behavior? Where we just go to the Lord and just ask for things? Okay, thank you, Lord, amen. Can you imagine if your marriage looked like that? You come home from work and your wife says, hey, honey, can you move the car? Sure, I can move the, oh, take your shoes off, please. Okay, I can, can you unload the dishes? 
um, in the dishwasher. Would you mind changing that light bulb? Oh, by the way, the trash needs to be taken out. The AC filter uh, needs changing. And of course, so does the baby's diaper. Could you just get to it? Amen. Can you imagine if that's what our relationships look like? No. You see, when we spend time in prayer, it's not just, Lord, here's what I need. But it's taking the time to recount who he is, to consider what he's done, to, yes, express our gratitude and to praise him for his goodness. And so that brings us to this final idea that Jacob teaches us in his prayer that we need to appeal to God's word. You see, in verse 12, Jacob has asked God to to protect him, to deliver him, but then in verse 12, he recounts, hey, I know that the, the kids are being threatened here, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea. Lord Esau may be a viable threat, but he's nothing in comparison with your promise. Does that make sense? I don't need to worry about the trial because I know that God's word is true. When we pray this way, this means taking time to appeal to God from his word. And I think this is a wonderful way for us to grow in prayers, to pray the prayers of the scripture. We're doing that on Wednesday nights as a church. We're taking time to pray for one another some of the prayers that we see in scripture. And so prayer is not a last resort. It should be a first and constant desire. In the midst of worry and in the midst of joy, prayer should be a moment for us to turn to the Lord. Again, not just when things are stressful or when we're in distress. God does know what we need before we ask, doesn't he? And so don't be foolish and say, Lord, it's a busy day. I'm just gonna have to bypass prayer today. You already know what I need, so thank you, Lord, for it. Amen, I gotta get to work. No, we we wanna take the time to realize that this prayer time is communion with the Lord. This is a time to enjoy him, to draw strength for what may lie ahead. Robert Murray Machane, he said, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. And so think about that. Who are we as we, as we stand before, as we kneel before the Lord? Even if our Lord Jesus spent so much time devoted to prayer and always walked in what pleased the Father, then how can we skip out on this important aspect of our faith? Spend time in prayer. So Jacob prays. But I would have loved for him to rise up from his prayer and say, bring it on, let's go. But what happens is he prepares. And I believe you could look at this from one of two angles, verses 13 through 21. You could look at it as if Jacob is falling back into fear, or you could look at it, he's answering his own prayer. Okay, Lord, I'm praying, and now I'm going to create a solution for the prayer. And I think we can, we can probably on either extreme fall into uh, you know, not pleasing the Lord. If we try to not do anything and just, well, the Lord will do it. We don't do anything versus another extreme. Well, uh, I'm going to make all of this happen. And so um, Joseph or Jacob does prepare. So notice verse 13, he stayed there that night. And from what he had, he took with him, uh, he took a present for his brother Esau. Now notice he separates each one of these droves. So first he sends 200 female goats and 20 male goats. And then he sends 200 ewes and 20 rams. And then he sends 30 milking camels and their calves. And then 40 cows and 10 bulls. And then 20 female and 10 male donkeys. So he sets each one of these apart. And 
I like what Matthew Henry says here. He says, quote, Jacob, having piously made God his friend by a prayer, is here prudently endeavoring to make Esau his friend by a present, end quote. And so as each drove arrives, just imagine being Esau. Here you are, you're Esau. Here's drove number one. Wow, that's an impressive amount of sheep. Here's, here's number two. Okay, wow, there's camels. And they just continue to come one after the other. He doesn't send jewels. He doesn't send clothing. But he sends what he has, uh, which is cattle. This is a picture of the great wealth that God has blessed him with. Now, later, down in verse 20, we realize what is the motivation. It says in verse 20, he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So he's not thinking on the fly. He's taken some time to prepare this impressive gift to seek reconciliation with his estranged brother. But what may be happening here is this is almost as if the, uh, the blessing of Isaac, the blessing that he had deceptively taken from his brother, it's almost as if he's giving it back to him. He's given him all of this, these gifts. And the added bonus is, hey, I know that I am now the patriarch. I'm the one that the line of the serpent crusher is going to go through. But I just want you to know my posture towards you, Esau, is that I am the lesser. I'm the servant. I believe here Jacob is not scheming or deceiving anymore. I believe that Laban drained that behavior out of him. I believe that here he's learning how to rest and trust the Lord. He is learning how to be genuine, authentic, honest, and humble. He's taken the situation that he has, and as he's turned it over to the Lord, he's saying, okay, Lord, I trust you to do your part. Now I'm going to bless my brother. And hopefully when he arrives, perhaps he will accept me. So he takes the time to prepare. He doesn't just pray and sit there. Neither does he take the situation into his own hands and begin to run. But you can see he's delaying. He's holding back. In fact, as we move into this last section, Jacob prevails. He's still holding back. He's sending everyone ahead. So notice verse 22, that same night he arose. He took his two wives, Leah and Rachel, his two female servants, Zilpah and Bilhah, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Now, to cross a stream in this time period would not have been easy. This would not have been quick. Here's a picture of the Jabbok. Today it's known as the Zarka River. It's the second largest tributary of the lower Jordan. And no matter where you cross it, it might be a trickle here or there, but most of the time it's a generous stream. And so this would have taken some time and great effort for him to move everyone across. But now they're on that side of the river, ahead of him, about to face Esau. And notice what happens next, verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. He's completely by himself. And then it says, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, there's a lot of speculation about this man. Who is this man? Well, it's not Esau. We know that for sure. It's not some random man who just walked up and said, do you want to wrestle? You got anything to do tonight? Let's grapple. It's not someone training Jacob in jujitsu for how to take out Esau. That's not what's happening. The verses after this indicate that this is some sort of divine presence. 
You see, later on, it tells us that he strove with God. Verse 30 says, you've seen God face to face. Was this an angel? Well, perhaps. As we've seen before in Genesis, sometimes when the angel of the Lord is referenced, that can be a reference not just merely to an angel, but to a theophany. And so for those reasons, many theologians and pastors, including myself, believe this may be a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. You see, verse 24 does not say that Jacob wrestled with an angel. It says with a man. In Hosea 12, 3 and 4, it says he strove with the angel and prevailed and wept and sought his favor. So as this, this man shows up, which I believe is the Lord, it says in verse 24, notice what it does not say. It does not say Jacob wrestled with the man. The man shows up, Jacob starts wrestling with him. It says the man wrestled with Jacob. And that's an important distinction. Because what I believe is happening here is the Lord is breaking Jacob down in his self-sufficiency, bringing him to a place of complete reliance, of complete submission. It says, though, that as they wrestled, the man who's wrestling Jacob did not prevail against him. So Jacob was determined, that's for sure. But then suddenly in the wrestling, it says the man touches his hip. Verse 25, when the man saw he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, I've never had a hip out of socket, but I have had a few little athletic injuries. I do know this though. What is one thing you absolutely cannot do if your hip is out of socket? Right? You can't run and you can't walk. In fact, if you do walk, you're going to limp. You're going to limp along. And so according to Hosea, he's clinging to the angel of the Lord. He's clinging to him and he begins to weep. He came out of the womb, clinging to Esau's heel, desiring to be first. And now he's clinging to the Lord and he just desires to be blessed. So how can we say he prevailed? Why would we use that as an idea? Why would this angel or why would the Lord say to him, you've striven with God and with man and you have prevailed? How does he prevail if he's disabled and weeping, laying here about to face Esau? Well, I like what Spurgeon and Strassner say about this. Spurgeon first says, quote, as soon as he felt that he must fall, he grasped the other man with a kind of death grip and he would not let him go. Now in his weakness, he will prevail. While he was so strong, he won not the blessing. But when he became utter weakness, then did he conquer, end quote. Strassner says it this way, quote, God could have ended the encounter any time he wanted. All he had to do was touch his hip and Jacob was crippled for the rest of his life. So the length of the bout being all night long wasn't because it was an even match. Why then did Jesus allow Jacob to grapple so long? He says this, to see how badly he really wanted the blessing of forgiveness and hope. And in that sense, Jacob prevailed. He's not wrestling with the Lord. The Lord is wrestling out of him the self-sufficiency, the pride, the scheming, and yes, even the running. Jacob, there's nowhere else to go now. You can't come up with another scheme. You're out of cattle. There's nowhere to run. 
He can't even physically barely walk. Jacob, are you now submitted? And sometimes in our own lives, the Lord will allow us to come to a place, won't he, where we stop running and scheming and plotting and try to offer gifts, but we finally come to a place where we say, I just want to cling to you. I just want to hold on to you. And I'm going to prevail in that. It's not going to be a one and done. This is going to be a time where I'm, I'm prevailing. I'm travailing in prayer. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable. And you don't have to turn there, but just listen to this. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, this is a parable of Jesus. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now that's like the worst judge ever. Can't believe he said that out loud. But the Lord said this, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You see, we have the opportunity in these times of distress to hold fast to the Lord. And I want to encourage us to do that. Well, he says to him, what is your name? Verse 27. Now, he's not asking out of ignorance, but he wants Jacob to utter his name. What's your name? My name is deceiver, supplanter, heel catcher. And then he said, yeah, that's not your name anymore. Your name is now Israel, for you've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, the name Israel is, is two, it's a compound of two words, Sarah, uh, which, yes, sounds like Abraham's wife's name, but uh, the way that this is used is Sarah to fight, to struggle, or to rule, and El. And so you could translate this as the one who fights or struggles with God. You, you wouldn't say the one who rules God. That wouldn't make sense. So many of the names in Hebrew, they put God as not the object of the verb, but the subject. And so in, in an example, Daniel's name means God judges, not the one who judges God. Does that make sense? So when we look at the name Israel, you could translate it as someone who struggles or fights with God, or you could reverse that and say God rules. God is the one who rules, who prevails over his people. And Jacob's identity is now changed, representing God's people, known as Israel. People who are, yes, often striving with God, but a people who are ruled by him. As day breaks, so has Jacob. He's a new man about to face the uncertainty of his brother, as we'll study next week in chapter 33. But Jacob's identity is now transformed. And as we consider this text in light of the gospel, you and I this morning stand before a much more ominous threat than Jacob did. It's not the vengeance of an unhappy brother, but you and I stand before the fury of a holy God 
whom we've rebelled against. We stand guilty and condemned before him and no gifts or groveling will be sufficient to satisfy his wrath. His holiness and our penalty demand death. And yet this morning, as Christians, we worship the true and better Jacob, the one who wrestled with the agonies of Calvary the night before he faced the wrath of Almighty God. We know in the garden he sweat drops of blood, greatly distressed and in agony. And it wasn't the hip of our Lord Jesus that was put out of joint, but as we've considered this past weekend, even Psalm 22 tells us that all of my bones are out of joint. We remember that his, from head to toe, his body was beaten, bruised, and crushed so that we might receive the favor of God. The only way to receive the favor of God is to trust Christ, to repent of our sin, to place our faith in him alone to deliver us from certain death. As those of us who have been changed, who are in Christ, like Jacob, we can acknowledge God has changed our identity. He's changed our name. We once were dead. We once were not a people. We once were blind. And now he's brought us from death to life. He's given sight to us. He's drawn us near. He didn't necessarily remove our hip from our socket, but he continues in our sanctification by the Spirit to break us, to change us, to empty us of our self-righteousness, of our self-sufficiency, our stubborn will, and to create in us a clean heart that's renewed and under his rule and reign. Paul said it this way to the Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God. This is a work that God has done. The scripture says over and over in the book of Revelation that the Lord gives the overcomer a new name that only he knows. He takes us from where we were, deceiver, supplanter, and he gives us a new identity, ruled by God. As we close this morning, I want to encourage you to consider your prayer life. I want to encourage you in times of distress to consider where you turn to for sources of comfort and sources of wisdom. I want to encourage you, no matter what you're facing this morning, that you can, like Jacob, affirm this is God's camp. I'm not alone. I feel alone. It's not about my feelings. I'm not alone. God is with me. And may we be encouraged by these stanzas from Charles Wesley. He wrote many hymns, but he also wrote a powerful poem that I encourage you to Google later today. It's called Wrestling Jacob. I'll try to post it on social media this week. Here's how the poem begins. Come, O thou traveler unknown, whom still I hold but cannot see. My company before is gone, and I am left alone with thee. With thee all night I mean to stay and wrestle till the break of day. I need not tell thee who I am, my misery or sin declare. Thyself hast called me by my name. Look on thy hands and read it there. But who, I ask thee, who art thou? Tell me thy name and tell me now. In vain thou strugglest to get free. I will never unloose my hold. Art thou the man that died for me? The secret of thy love unfold. Wrestling, I will not let thee go till I thy name, thy nature know. And those last two lines are repeated throughout the poem. Wrestling, I will not let thee go till I thy name, 
thy nature know. May that be our desire and prayer, that we would be willing to wrestle, to prevail, to travail, to, to do the hard work of saying, Lord, I want nothing more than just to hold to you. I won't let you go until you bless me. Let's stand together. We're going to close in song and being reminded that every step that we take, even those limping steps, we're trusting our lives to Christ. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the broken man before us, the man who prior to this encounter was completely doing his best, even from birth, to hold on to the thing or things that he desired, even facing Laban and his own match, facing all of the unknowns of Esau, and yet finally coming to a place of brokenness where he said, I just want to cling to you, and that's enough. Lord, for many of us, you have wrestled out of us a desire for materialism, for self-glory. You, Lord, have allowed us to experience loss and severe trial, some of us. And Father, these have been brought into our life to produce endurance, to produce character, and to produce hope. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not shrink back from suffering, shrink back from distress, but we would, we would cling to you, we'd look to you. Lord, we thank you that our Lord endured the greatest trial by dying in our stead, by being fully embracing the cup of wrath. Lord, we thank you for the death that he died that we deserved. We thank you that he rose again triumphantly as we've just celebrated and celebrate every week. And Lord, we ask, Lord, that as we walk with you in step with the Holy Spirit, broken people before you, that we would learn how to pray, how to rely on you, how to submit to you. Lord, every step that we take, may we submit our lives to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Thanks for listening to our podcast. King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.